That was a song that ministered to me and my family a couple of years ago when we lost our grandfather, a man of the Lord. And that is the first time I've ever sung that uh, in church. That was a great blessing to me. Thank you for leading us in that. It is good to be here with you, Park Hills. I've known about this church for several years now. Prior to coming to Austin, I was an associate pastor at a church in the Rockwall area, which is just east of Dallas. And it was a small church, but we had a family there, the Resters, and they had a daughter who came here and was a member here while she was in uh, college. And uh, they would come down and visit on occasion, and they always spoke so highly of you all and this fellowship and Pastor Samuel. And since coming to Austin, I have continued to only be encouraged by what I've seen and what I've heard uh, from Park Hills, what the Lord's doing here. So it really is a joy to get to be with you this morning for the first time. This morning, we're going to look at how to make plans, how to make plans. Making plans is a part of life. Often, at the start of a new year, we make plans, new exercise plans, new diet plans. Maybe for you parents, you have made new plans for how you are going to parent your kids, less screen time, more family meals, consistent family devotionals. Maybe I've just shared with you my plans for 2024. But we're a month and a half into 2024, so how have your plans for this year gone so far? Perhaps the only plans on your mind right now are where you're going to eat after the service today, or where you're going to watch the Super Bowl, perhaps, tonight. There's nothing wrong with making plans. In fact, it's often irresponsible to not make plans. If you are in charge of preparing meals at your house, you need a plan. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a bunch of hungry, probably fussy folks pretty soon. Well, we all make plans, and it's important that we do, Uh, Perhaps some of you have plans to start a business and make a profit or move up in your company or earn a degree. Maybe you're making plans right now to accomplish something great. But how are you going about making those plans? Are you, as the world might teach you, to just believe in yourself, to call your shot, if you will? In 1932, uh, there was a legendary moment where Babe Ruth... Uh, In the World Series against the Chicago Cubs, there were two strikes, and he's at the the plate, um, getting ready to bat, and he points his bat over the fence uh, to, to indicate he's about to hit a home run, right? And this is a highly disputed moment, but he goes on to hit a home run, right? Very fortunate for him, too. He would have looked rather foolish had he not hit that home run. But oftentimes, we can have that same arrogance about our plan making, only to fail, or even if our plans do come to fruition, it's not because we were ultimately in control. And that's what our passage today teaches. When we make plans about the future, are we to have that same type of confidence in ourselves as Babe Ruth? Are we to believe in the power of positive thinking? Are we to be proud? Can we be sure our plans will go as expected? Well, God and his word answers this question in our text today in James chapter 4, 13 through 17. So let's read that verse, that passage now, beginning in verse 13. 
the word of the Lord reads, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Church, will you join me now as I pray for this time? Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be able to open your word and read it and hear it. Please help us to receive it in faith. Please help these words I speak today to be true and faithful to your word, to be clear, to be helpful. We pray that you would edify your people this morning and glorify your son Jesus. And if there is anyone here who does not know you, God, we ask that you would draw them to you now. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. James here in chapter 4 teaches us that there is a right and a wrong way to make plans. If we're going to approach the future in a manner that honors the Lord, we're going to make plans with humility and a resolve to obey. That's the very simple main uh, thrust of my message this morning, right? That we, if we're going to honor God with our plans, we're going to make plans with humility and a resolve to obey the Lord. And in fact, James gives us four reasons why. And the first is this, again, very simple, you don't know the future. I hope you know that this morning, that you don't know the future. Beginning in verse 13, James writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. The book of James, if you didn't know, sort of functions as the New Testament's book of wisdom, similar to Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. It teaches us how to live wisely as Christians. It teaches us what our lives ought to look like if we belong to Jesus. It teaches us that faith without works is actually a dead faith. It teaches us what true Christian wisdom is and what it looks like. And so here, James is helping us to be wise in how we make plans, how we approach the future. And he addresses those who are unwisely presumptuous about the future. They presume that they know what the future holds, and they have their eyes set on worldly treasure, on profit. Later on in chapter 5, and the latter half of verse 5, James writes, You have laid up treasure in the last days. The last days there is the period that began when Christ came and will last until Christ returns bringing final judgment. And James is writing to those who are more focused on the here and now, acquiring riches, all the while ignorant of the coming final judgment and ignorant of how worthless their earthly treasure will be proven to be. When this happens, you can be acting, though, as, as though you are sovereign over your own life, 
that you have the power to determine your future. And this, of course, is what our enemy, Satan, wants us to believe. He wants us to attempt to take matters into our own hands with our own worldly pursuits. Our enemy, the father of lies, wants us to believe that we know what the future holds. But saying you know what the future holds, if you go beyond scripture, that is, is actually lying. Now, there are some things about the future we do know. As Christians, we know that in the future, God is going to be faithful to fulfill every single one of his promises. And that one day, Jesus is going to return. We know that everyone is going to have to give an account of his or her life. We know these things. What we don't know, though, is when they're going to take place. As much as we do know from God's word, there is so much about the future we do not know. You may have some wisdom and be able to make some educated guesses as to how things will turn out, but ultimately you don't actually know. And why don't you know the future? Well, James gives us an answer in verse 14. He says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes perhaps an unexpected answer. James says, you don't know the future because your life is a mist. You're not God. You're a vapor. When you go outside on a cold day and you can breathe out and see your breath for just a second, but then it's gone. That's your life. There's a brevity to it. There's an uncertainty to it. This is the biblical, the eternal perspective we ought to have on our lives. We often think life is just going to keep going on and on and on for us, and that we'll have all the time in the world to pursue our passions and carry out our dreams and our plans. But we are finite beings with limitations. One of those limitations being that our life will come to an end one day, and we don't know when that day will be. Life is short and uncertain. You cannot count on having time in the future even to get right with God. Perhaps you were here this morning, and you think Christianity is good and all, but that you're going to pursue other things now and come to faith later on after you've experienced all of the good things that life has to offer. I want to encourage you, do not believe that lie. Friends, you do not know the future. This is weighty, but James' reminder here is, oh, so Important. When we boast about our future plans, it's because we forget what we actually are. I'm a mist, you are a, vi- a mist here today and gone tomorrow, not in control. And when we forget this, we also forget who is actually in control, right? It is not us who have the ability to guarantee what the future holds, but God. It's God who ordains the future. This is the second reason or truth we need to store up in our hearts. You see, you don't know the future, but God does. But not only does he know the future, he knows the future because he's the one who ordains the future. This means he's the one who has the plan that will actually be carried out, and we can be certain that God's plans will always be carried out. Your God ordains the future. We see this in verse 15. Where, in contrast with boasting about the future, James writes, 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. When you make plans, the only way they will come to fruition is if the Lord chooses or desires for them to come to fruition. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the will of God in this way. James says, if the Lord wills. Now, when we refer to the will of God, we could be referring to two different things. One, we could be referring to what is sometimes known as God's will of desire. God's will of desire. And I get this from Kevin DeYoung's book, Just Do Something. He's not the first one to write on this, but the way that he um, talks about this is very helpful. But God's will desire, by that we're referring to when God reveals through his word, through his law, what his desire for us is. God wills all people to worship him and to know him, to trust in him. God wills all people not to steal, not to lie, not to, not to cheat, not to kill, right? That's God's desire for us, right? If you want to know what God's will for your life is, you can look at God's word, and there's so many wonderful commandments for us, right? We can know how God desires for us to live, in this same vein, God also desires or wills that everyone believes in the gospel and turns from their sin. This is what Peter refers to in 2 Peter 3, 2, when he says that God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right? You can call this God's will of desire. My question for you is, do we always do what God desires of us? Do we always obey him? Do all people believe in Jesus and turn from their sin and place their hope in the gospel? Sadly, no. So what does James mean here when he says, if the Lord wills, then we will do this or that? And it's best, I believe, to understand this as referring to God's will of decree. God's will of decree. You see, we can know God's will of desire from his word, but here James is talking about something we don't know. Because he says there in verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know the future, but God does. And whatever happens in the future will be what he wills. This is what we were referring to when you say that God is sovereign. Even over the future, our God is sovereign. Everything that takes place on this earth and throughout time and space does so because God decrees it. God ordains it. We could spend a long time combing through Scripture to see how God is sovereign over all things, but consider a few verses with me that I hope that you will find comfort in. Consider little things that God is sovereign over, like the roll of a dice. In Proverbs 16.33, we read, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Consider big things, like his sovereignty over kings. In Proverbs 21.1, it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Is he sovereign even over the bad things that happen? Well, consider what Lamentations 3, 37-38 teaches us. God's word reads, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? No event has taken place beyond God's control. And this includes even the cross, where Jesus, God himself who took on flesh, bled and died to save sinners, 
Even this took place in the will of God. In Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, Luke records a prayer where we read these words. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's will was done, and it included men crucifying Jesus. God did not command those men to crucify Jesus. And yet, it was part of his plan that this was done so that he could save us from our sins and to make his glory known. The Lord sometimes wills for terrible things to unfold in order to bring about much good for us and in order to display his glory. What effect does that have on you right now? Hopefully, it should bring you much comfort and it should give us a reason to rejoice. This isn't a new concept in James. James begins his letter by saying, in chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness having its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Lord wills for us at times to endure trials even terrible things to unfold for the testing, strengthening, and refining of our faith. And this flies in the face of what many teach today. Flies in the face of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel movement, where teachers say that you can name it and claim it, that if you just believe enough, you can have whatever your heart desires. God's word teaches us instead to say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will make a profit. If the Lord wills, we can buy a new house. If the Lord wills, we will get accepted into that school. If the Lord wills, we will be healthy. If the Lord wills, we will go on that fancy vacation. If the Lord wills is what we shall say. We need to learn to say, if the Lord wills. Now, maybe I don't need to say this, but I'll say it. This doesn't mean we need to go around and demand that every time somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I'm going to go home and make tacos, you should judge them and say, that's a little presumptuous. You need to say if the Lord wills, you're going to go home and make some tacos, right? No, we don't want to be Pharisees on this. And we'll see further on, but what James is addressing here is the heart, the heart issue of arrogance and pride that manifests itself in boasting about the future. It is a wise practice, no doubt, to get in the habit of saying, if the Lord wills, or Lord willing. Especially when talking about weighty decisions and serious plans. But we don't want to be legalistic towards others, or even ourselves, when James here is going after the heart in our plan making. If the Lord wills, we will do, we will live and do this or that. Now, not only are our future actions and successes contingent on God's will, but also something even far more foundational than that. Did you catch what James says? If the Lord wills, we will live. We forget that every day is the mists and vapors that we are is a gift. We're back once again to the uncertainty of life from our perspective of not knowing the future. 
We ought to see every day as a gift that God has willed that we have. And so do you live with that awareness? And does your heart have the appropriate gratitude for the time that you've been given? And if God has willed you to live, how are you going to respond? Are you going to live with a trust in God and a humble submission to his sovereignty? Or are you going to continue on in your arrogance? The third reason why we are to approach the future with humility and obedience is this. James is going to teach us that your boasting about the future is arrogance. So therefore we can say, do not be arrogant in making plans. In verse 16, James writes, As it is you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Boasting is a common way pride and arrogance are expressed by a person. Pride is when we are more focused on ourselves and our reputation rather than God. One person wrote, the proud live as though they are kings of their own kingdom, whereas the humble recognize they are creatures of the king of kings. James has already quoted from the Proverbs when he wrote earlier in this chapter, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Boasting is one way the proud exalt themselves, how they draw attention to themselves. Are you the kind of person that boasts, that has a boastful spirit? Perhaps you often hear someone tell a story and you have to chime in and say, oh, that's nothing, once I did this, right? Or something like that. We can boast about any number of things. We can be proud in any number of things. But what's the boasting that James is referring to here? Well, it's the boasting about the future, right? We read about in verse 13, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town, and spend a year there and make a profit. This type of boastful speech springs forth from hearts that are arrogant about the future. When we are proud and confident that our plans will be successful, we do so because we have an elevated sense of our status and our power. We think we are in control of the situation, that everything will go as planned. We forget that we are a mist, a vapor, instead living as though we our God. What our passage is calling us to, though, is this, to flee from all arrogance. To use James' language, we must resist the devil here. We must draw near to God. We have to tame our boastful tongues. We have to humble ourselves before the Lord. And to summarize this verse, verse 16, in the form of a command would be, don't be arrogant and boastful regarding the future. A good rule for applying the Bible to your life is when you see something described as evil, don't do that thing, right? That's something you want to stay away from. Arrogance is evil. Don't be arrogant about the future. But we can also restate this in the positive, though, that we need to make plans humbly. A humble spirit, when making plans about the future, is expressed in the words, if the Lord wills. When we make plans regarding the future, we are to do so with a loose grip and motivated by God's glory, right? So make plans with a loose grip and motivated by God's glory. A loose grip meaning that things could change. Things so often do change. And motivated by God's glory meaning we're making these plans not to promote ourselves, 
to prove ourselves, to serve ultimately ourselves, but to glorify Christ, make him known, and pursue the good of those around us. When you don't get that promotion as you thought you would, maybe even planned you'd get, when you don't acquire the wealth that you thought, or that someone else gets that opportunity you wanted or prosper more than you, humility protects you from falling into all sorts of evil like discontentment, envy, anger, despair, and more. Because those things aren't ultimately what you're living for. They're not what drive you. They're not what give you hope or what give you joy. They're not what give you meaning. It's God who does that. We are to make plans knowing our limitations and the proper goals we ought to have. If we have the ultimate goals established, which, it, which are God's glory and the good of those around us, next we need to bring all of our other goals into alignment with those primary foundational goals. We are to make plans humbly, yielding to his will and his desire for us, thus his glory. As you consider the possibility of taking a new job, uprooting your family to a new city, signing your kid up for a sport that plays on Sundays, which is very common nowadays, ask yourself, will these decisions help or hinder my family's ability to glorify God and do good for my family and those around us? Will these decisions help my family to better know and love Jesus? Or these decisions, I'd be making more to serve myself, my ego, my career, my status, my wealth, and so on. And listen, we may make plans that are motivated by God's glory, and yet still God has something else planned. And that's okay. We just readjust while our focus stays the same. Whatever happens, though, we can be confident that God's will was and is and always will be done. Amen? God's call to us this morning is to put aside our arrogance, which helps us to accept God's will in whatever comes to pass. The fourth and final reason we are to approach the future humbly and obediently is this, very simple again, your refusal to obey God is sin. Your refusal to obey is sin. Now, it can be easy for us to slip into viewing the Christian life as one where we simply try to avoid all the things we're not supposed to do. Right? Don't be arrogant. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. All those things, great. If I don't do those things, I'm good. But all of these things, they are so important as they reflect the heart of God. But living, obedient, God-glorifying lives as Christians isn't only about not doing sinful things. What we would call sins of commission, where we are committing sin. When we make plans for the future, we don't want to sin by doing sinful deeds, so we don't want to plan to commit any sin. We also don't want to plan with sinful, arrogant motives, where we plan to not obey in areas we're supposed to. We don't want to sin by omission, omitting what God's word clearly calls us to do. And this is what James speaks of here in verse 17. He says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Often we know what the wrong things to do are, so we try not to do them, but often we fail to consider what the right thing to do is. Maybe you're avoiding something in your life you know 
that you need to do right now. The Lord is calling you. The Lord is pressing upon you to obey him, to trust in him, to step out in faith. Not doing so is an act of arrogance. He has just said all arrogance is evil and then says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. What we're talking about here once again is God's will of desire, which we discussed previously. And what, and what is God's will of desire? Well, that we do what he commands, that we do all things for his glory. Arrogance causes us to do things we ought not to do, but it also keeps us from doing what we ought to do. For example, arrogance is what keeps us from showing mercy to those we deem below us, something James' audience struggled with. Pride is what keeps us from engaging in a conversation about the gospel when our reputation or our comfort are at stake. We don't want to risk others thinking we are strange or that we are overly pious or radical in our beliefs. Arrogance hinders us from planning to use our time well for the glory of God. James is a book of wisdom, and it shows us that worldly wisdom is characterized by pride and selfish ambition, whereas true wisdom, godly wisdom, is characterized by humility and a desire to obey the Lord. Friends, true saving faith is going to bear the fruit of humility and obedience. This isn't just an obedience that is known for not doing bad things, but an obedience that seeks to make the best use of our time for God's glory and the good of those around us. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How can we know what the will of the Lord is in the sense that Paul is talking about? By looking at his word, where God tells us how he desires us to live. This, again, is where it's helpful to go back to the difference between God's will of decree and God's will of desire. When James says... So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. He's saying whoever knows God's will of desire and does not do it, that is sin. If you know what God commands all Christians to do and yet you don't do it, you're living in rebellion to God. And just from the book of James, uh, I don't know the last time you read through James, you worked through it, but James calls Christians to several things. He calls Christians to be humble He calls Christians to show mercy, and he mentions mercy to orphans and widows. We're to care for those in need. We're to rejoice in every season, because we know that even in trials, God is at work producing in us a stronger, more enduring faith. You also know that when you make plans, you ought to do so with a loose grip, saying, if the Lord wills, we will do this. That is what James calls us to. We are to make plans according to the will of God. And a concise way scripture puts it in the Old Testament is found in Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. As you examine your life today, what fruit 
do you see? Is it merely the fruit of not doing bad things? Praise God for your fight against sin, but also is there positive fruit in your life? Are you serving others? Are you humble toward others? Are you humble toward God? Are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit like kindness? Are you giving thanks in all circumstances? The Apostle Paul again in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 writes, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We can give thanks and rejoice in every trial. Why? Because we have a God who ordains all things for our good. If you are in Christ, there is nothing today or this upcoming year that will ever catch God off guard or will go beyond his will. If you are in Christ, your soul can be at rest this morning knowing that God is in control. He will always be in control. As we consider Ephesians 5 and 6, we see uh, Paul lay out further instruction for us. He lays out God's will for us as Christians. He lays out God's will for us as husbands. For those of you who are husbands, God has called us to love our wives as Christ loves the church. We are to lead, provide, and protect our families as Christ has called us. And if you're a father, God has instructed us, called us to not provoke our children to anger. We know the right thing to do. We are to do it. And wives, God has called you to love and submit to your husbands. And if you're a mother, to love, nurture, and disciple your children, which is so vitally important. If you're a child here this morning, God has called you to obey and to honor your parents in the Lord. You may not necessarily fall into any of those specific categories from Ephesians but at this time, but if you're a Christian and you're a church member, God has given you the very high calling of making disciples and to not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but to meet together all the more, encouraging each other and stirring each other up to love and to good works. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. God's word gives us a lot of right things to do. It places a lot of demands on us. Some of us do perhaps feel overwhelmed this morning thinking about everything God's word commands us to do. Things that we have to fight to want to do sometimes. But I want to encourage you with something this morning that I hope you already know, and that is this. The beauty for us as Christians is this. Our obedience to God is not for salvation, but from it. I'll say that again. Our obedience to God is not for salvation, but from it. We don't obey God so that we can be Christians. We obey God because we are Christians. We have looked to God's law and seen how we can never find justification there. Instead, we have looked to Jesus and his cross, and we see there, it's there that we find justification and acceptance before God. We have already celebrated this truth in song this morning. It is in Christ, even, that we find the strength to go out and to now live for him. Our approach to the future should be one of humility and obedience and both come as a result of knowing and looking to Jesus. So, are you looking to Jesus this morning? 
Are you trusting in him? If you are not, you're not going to have the humility that Christians are called to have. Are you looking to Jesus? If you're not, you're not going to find the strength to obey. Be holy as I am holy, God says. And what that looks like in believers is humility and obedience, not presumption and not arrogance. We need to make plans according to God's will. Don't sin by commission. Don't sin by omission. Don't sin by not doing what God has clearly commanded you to do. We need to make plans, but friends, make plans according to God's will with humility and a resolve to obey him. As we close, we don't know what God has in store for us this year, let alone this afternoon. Perhaps this is a year of trials of various kinds that God will bring to refine you, to strengthen you, to grow you as a Christian. Perhaps it is a year of abundance where God tests you and blesses you so that you may be a blessing to others and prove that your treasure is still found in Christ and not in these earthly gifts. Likely, this year will be a mixture of the two, though, the good and the bad, right? The trials and the blessings. Whatever your circumstances are, God will use them to expose or refine the kind of faith that you have in him. These circumstances will reveal whether or not we are truly trusting in him, whether we are truly delighting in him, or if we are really delighting more in his gifts. They will reveal whether we are living for his glory or ours. They will expose arrogance, or they will reveal humility. We don't know God's will for the future, but we do know who holds the future. The sovereign God who stands outside of time and holds all things together and is working all things together for the good of those who love him. He's working all things together according to his glorious eternal purpose. We can make plans that honor God when we maintain this perspective and seek to live for his glory as he has commanded us to do. For our good, we are to live for him. And all of this knowing that it is only if the Lord wills that these plans come to fruition. If they do, then praise be to God. If they don't, praise God for his plans are better. In all things, we are to give glory to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are humbled when we think of who you are. That you are a truly sovereign God, and yet you are a truly good God. Lord, there is no part of our hearts or our minds that go unseen by you, and yet you have looked upon us in love. You have sent Christ to save, to redeem us, to bring us to yourself. God, we can now enjoy the privilege of being your children through faith in Jesus, And God, as your children, we pray that you'd help us to live out the calling you have placed upon us. Lord, help us to live wisely. Help us to make plans wisely to approach the future with humility and not arrogance. And Lord, help us to be resolved to obey you in all things so that we might make much 
of Jesus, our Savior, and make much of our glorious, glorious Heavenly Father. We pray this in Jesus' name now. Amen.